Telehealth is just a tool for providers to, under the standard of care, deliver services to patients. It's nothing more complicated than that. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Connecting ALS. I am your co-host, Jeremy Holden, joined this week by my friend, colleague, and co-host, Jessica Chapman. Jessica, how are you doing this week? I'm doing great, Jeremy. How are you doing this week? Doing good. I'm glad to hear that you're doing well as well. You know, it it occurs to me as we gather over the internet to bring this conversation to listeners, there's nothing at all controversial about that, about us coming together on a virtual platform to share our thoughts with each other because we've come to realize that telecommunication is communication. Absolutely. Cannot agree more with that. Telecommunication is so critical, especially in the new day that we're in, if you will, regarding the uh, pandemic, COVID, how it certainly upended all of our lives. And this medium has allowed us to be able to stay connected in ways that we probably couldn't do without it. Slightly less non-controversial, unfortunately, is the notion that telehealth is health. But telehealth is health is the message coming from the American Telemedicine Association during the first ever Telehealth Awareness Week, which is running September 19th through the 25th. The ALS Association is an endorsing partner of Telehealth Awareness Week because telehealth is important to the ALS community. We have had the opportunity in the past 18 months on this show to hear from clinicians who are interacting with their patients virtually. We've heard how increased access to telehealth has made it easier for people with ALS to gain access to multidisciplinary care centers. And we've heard about some of the advocacy being done to make expanded access to telehealth permanent. And this week, we are furthering that conversation. We are indeed. We had a great opportunity to speak with Kyle Zebley. He's the Vice President of Public Policy with the American Telemedicine Association. And Jeremy, as you noted, a lot of people are in this space, a lot of advocates, and a lot of work is going on behind the scenes. So Kyle was able to join us and expand upon not only what the association is doing itself, but how they're working along with other organizations to advance access to telehealth and telemedicine. Yeah, the fight continues. As we've discussed on this show, the expanded access is temporary, a response to the public health crisis that we all know as COVID-19. That expanded access is expected to sunset when the health crisis is over. So the fight now is to make that permanent, to make sure we're already seeing governors declaring the public health crisis over and starting to take away some of that access. So the fight continues. And let's hear from Kyle Zebley about where the fight goes from here. Kyle, thanks so much for being with us this week. Thanks so much. Really glad to be here. Yeah, glad to continue the conversation about telehealth awareness, telehealth access. Obviously, it's something, you know, we've talked about a lot on the show, something that has been front of mind for everyone, either in the healthcare industry or who acts as it day to day. But let's just start with with why now? Why is this the year that we're having the the first ever telehealth awareness week? Well, Uh, Great question. We're coming after more than 18 months of living with a pandemic that's changed our lives in so many ways. And it's often said that the the silver lining of the clouds of the pandemic uh, was the country's telehealth experience. You know, telehealth has been around for a long time, longer than people might realize. The American Telemedicine Association was actually founded in 1993 during the early days of virtual care. Uh, But there had still been so many barriers when we were starting 2020 that were in place through laws or regulation at both the federal level and state level 
that had really been impeding uh, the potential growth of telehealth and, and impeding uh, patients and providers that wanted to utilize technology to deliver care. And so what happened is, of course, in, in March of 2020, uh, the country went into shutdown mode and uh, folks, policymakers, were looking for ways to increase access to care while keeping people in their house, uh, if at all possible. And so they really targeted a lot of the rules and regulations that we had long been saying needed to come down in order to increase access to virtual care. They did it on a temporary uh, basis. And, and lo and behold, millions of Americans, uh, through actions taken by federal and state policymakers, were able to access telehealth for the first time, and they liked it. And it's overwhelmingly positive, uh, kind of shocking pools in terms of just the sheer high level of support for the industry. We've continued that momentum into 2021. We have had the most successful year in terms of state legislative actions in the history of this industry. And so it was decided that, you know, uh, September would be a wonderful time to really focus everybody's mind, set a week aside, and urge telehealth policy champions uh, to spread the good word as to what telehealth is doing, can do, and what, uh, what a great future is in store for us. Uh, and obviously, we'll, we'll help inform anyone uh, that is interested as to what they can do to make sure that uh, existing barriers or barriers that might come back into place can, can be removed uh, so that we can continue to make sure folks have access to care where and when they need it. Kyle, thank you so much. Your points around telehealth and how important and critical it was, especially during the pandemic, brings to mind the Telehealth Modernization Act, which I know is currently sitting as a bill. Can you go into this a little bit and why this is so important, especially now? Absolutely. Uh, Telehealth Modernization Act, which has now been introduced for two Congresses running, is uh, a wonderful comprehensive bill that seeks to make permanent the flexibilities that have made access to telehealth easier. Those flexibilities came about during the public health emergency. And oftentimes they're, they're temporary in nature and they're gonna go away if the public health emergency ends and Congress has not acted. That actually is setting ourselves up for what we're calling the telehealth cliff. So right now, Medicare beneficiaries have access to virtual care where and when they need it regardless of where they're geographically located and regardless of originating site. And I, I say those two terms because uh, those are really, uh, you know, items that are embedded in law that will snap back into a place if the public health emergency ends. In 1997, Congress passed uh, Section 1834M of the Social Security Act, which says that if you're going to have reimbursable virtual care in the Medicare program. You have to be physically in a provider's office and located in a rural area outside of a major metropolitan area. And that was in effect uh, all the way until the beginning of the pandemic when the PHE went into effect and will go back into place when the PHE ends again if Congress doesn't act. And uh, that meant that a, an extremely small sliver of Medicare beneficiaries had access to virtual care prior to the pandemic. And obviously, it's one of those very rare areas. We don't really know of any other area of the Social Security Act in terms of Medicare, Medicaid, or Social Security benefits, where you're discriminated against uh, really just on where you're located. And also, it, it hasn't kept up with technology because it's forcing you to physically go somehow in some mode of transportation, believe it or not, in order to even access virtual care. Your home would not be an, origina an acceptable originating site 
under existing law. So Telehealth Modernization Act addresses that, permanently removes those geographic and originating site barriers, uh, allowing Medicare beneficiaries to maintain access to telehealth for years to come to keep pace with technology. It also ensures uh, from an equity perspective that those Americans that rely on rural health clinics or federally qualified health centers will continue to be able to access telehealth moving forward. And so it's a great piece of legislation. It's, it's, it's also uh, similar to other bills, for instance, the Connects for Health Act, which has been introduced uh, several Congresses running and has been introduced this Congress by Senator Schatz of uh, Hawaii, is uh, now at over 60 co-sponsors in the Senate, uh, which of course means it's filibuster proof. And while it does things slightly differently, it has the same general thrust of the Telehealth Modernization Act. And the support for these pieces of legislation is very clear uh, that we're bipartisan in nature and that members of Congress in overwhelming numbers want to make sure that Medicare beneficiaries don't lose access to virtual care at the end of the pandemic. A lot of the conversation has been about making permanent the changes that were put into place at the beginning of the pandemic, of the, of the public health emergency. But what other fights are coming in the future? In other words, is that sufficient or what comes next the day after if the Telehealth Modernization Act or, or something of, it, of its kind comes into place? Is that the end and we, we've won and, and we have all, that, all the access we need? Uh, no. Uh, of course, it's a necessary first step. And I'll just talk about, you know, here we are, the American Telemedicine Association, around since 1993, we're, we're certainly having a moment where more influential than ever, policymakers seek out us just as often as we seek out them, uh, which is a great place to be. And, and like I was saying, it was, it's wonderful that we're uh, such a bipartisan issue. It's wonderful that we had an ally in President Trump and an ally on Inauguration Day when President Biden was sworn into office. Uh, not many folks, not many you know, associations can claim uh, that they had a friend on either side of Inauguration Day in the White House, certainly on a healthcare issue. So it's, it, that's fantastic. And we're really at a, a unique point in time. We've got to fight for these flexibilities. That's not a given. But if we are able to make uh, sure that they uh, are passed, uh, this is for Medicare beneficiaries. This is for folks utilizing the federally qualified health centers and rural health clinics that I mentioned. But there's going to be more to do. The American uh, Medical Association has been around for well over a century. They've got a lot of victories under their belt, uh, but the important work that they're doing in advocating for the nation's physicians goes on. And so, of course, for uh, the American Telemedicine Association, after we uh, have a have permanence in the Medicare program, we'll look to make sure at the federal level that that permanence is maintained, that the regulatory authority granted to the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services is properly implemented, that telehealth services are being properly covered, that any kind of hindrances to the growth of telehealth in future as we look towards a truly hybrid model, uh, those hindrances are removed in a thoughtful manner, so making sure that uh, that quality care is still going to be delivered. The range of battles vary widely at the state level. We're delighted to have, again, bipartisan support at the state level. But to be frank with you, there are those that might doubt the efficacy of telehealth for you know, substantive reasons of their own and their people of goodwill. And we won't question them. We'll just try to educate them about how, how kind of, what kind of quality care that patients can receive through telehealth, what kind of quality care providers can deliver to patients via telehealth. 
But there are also those that look at patients, frankly, as market share. And they do not want to see that uh, market share encroached upon. And they might have thought that the healthcare system, such as it was uh, prior to the pandemic in early 2020 and before, uh, suited their interests well. And so they're going to fight back. These are these can be influential people, uh, influential stakeholders that might want to fight back to make sure that roadblocks are put up so that they do not have to deal with the disruptive uh, effects of of telehealth and telehealth organizations delivering care uh, virtually. And so that's something that we have to be very much aware of. We've had a, a fantastic series of state legislative sessions in 2021, the most successful year in the history of the telehealth industry in terms of uh, more than half the states po- passing positive bills into law from our perspective that we advocated. And actually all of the bills that we thought would have uh, rolled things back were defeated. Uh, so we, we've really got a wonderful record right now. But that's because the wind was on our back. Telehealth is phenomenally popular and constituents are telling their policymakers. But these stakeholders, and I mentioned before, they could well rally and try to start start trying to roll things back. And and we could well be in a place where we're going into headwinds heading into 2022 and beyond. And so that's certainly something that we have to be aware of. So, and, and as I like to say, if you know one state and one state's telehealth policies, you know one state's telehealth policies. Frankly, the community has its work cut out for us uh, trying to make sure that we're monitoring and tracking what's happening in each state capital. Over a thousand bills were introduced in all 50 states in the series of state uh, legislative sessions, all whittled down to 25, 26 bills passed into law. But uh, any one of those bills could have gone through the whole process. We had to track them every step of the way. So I think that gives you some idea of of just having our work cut out for us. The the ATA is going to be busy for many years to come. Yeah, I wanted to ask about the fights at the state level, and and I know it's easy to think about advocacy, public policy fights happening at the federal level, and that is important, but there are state and local fights that are happening. What are you seeing in the states in terms, or are you seeing efforts to try and roll back in advance some of the access that has been granted as part of the public health emergency? So there have been some attempts, and we'll expect more. Uh, They they can come in, in different forms. So, uh, you know, states, a lot of our members live or die by what happens in the states. Uh, That's where the the regulation oversight laws governing commercial insurance, commercial coverage occur. Uh, Those are where state Medicaid decisions are made, dictating what that state Medicaid program will or will not cover, uh, certainly in the realm of telehealth. That's where the practice of medicine laws are set, including what the standard of care is and, for instance, what modalities of telehealth will be allowed and will not be allowed. And by modalities, of course, we're talking about synchronous audiovisual telehealth like we're doing now on a Zoom call, you know, in, in which folks can see each other, the provider can talk to the patient. Also talking about asynchronous telehealth, which is an, an online platform in which a physician or a medical professional will review it later on, not in real time, as patients input their information. Uh, remote monitoring and connected devices and all that information that can be transmitted back to a provider that is taking care of a patient uh, for a sustained period of time. Of course, audio only, telehealth. We're modality neutral as an organization. We think that all of these modalities should be offered as a tool for providers to deliver care to their patient as they see fit under the appropriate standard of care. Uh, But of course, uh, some states seek to slice and dice what modalities can be used and what services can be provided. And so we try to fight for neutrality. We try to make sure that telehealth 
is considered part of the U.S. healthcare system, not something separate and apart. But there, here are the, the, the here's the toolkit for folks uh, in order to try to put up roadblocks uh, through these various levers to telehealth. And so it's a really it's a, it's an all day, all week, all year activity uh, to try to fight back against either laws that might be passed to roll us back or regulatory organizations that will try to put up roadblocks and, and do an end run around perhaps the state legislative intent. I'll just say, for instance, we have successfully beat back uh, for the last decade state uh, practice of medicine laws requiring in-person requirements that would mandate that a patient has to see a provider in person before that provider can, uh, can deliver care virtually. There have been instances uh, during this series of state legislative sessions in 2021 uh, where various states have tried to put some kind of equivalent in-person requirement into place. Uh, for instance, there was a piece of legislation in California that's still actually active now, uh, but an earlier iteration of it before it was amended, essentially mandated for insurers to force patients to go in person if they were in a, a, in a geographic proximity to a provider that could deliver in-person care. Uh, it's discriminatory. It's unnecessary. It's a barrier to care. Uh, we think it's an access for underserved communities issue, equity issue, and it clearly is cutting against the grain of the trend of where other states have gone to the point where now we have no state practice medicine law in the country that has in-person requirements, but it's something that could crop back and it's a huge, huge priority to make sure those kind of laws don't take, in, uh, take effect. Oh, thank you. You know, your your notation about barriers, roadblocks, it, it sparks to me, but a little bit outside of the public policy arena. What are some barriers, challenges that patients experience in accessing telehealth? Like I, I specifically go to, you know, communities who, you know, be, you know, economically disadvantaged and perhaps not able to afford internet. Is that a barrier? I, it feels like it is. And what else may be? Right. Uh, there, there are a variety of barriers in place for folks accessing virtual care. There can be a socioeconomic folks can't afford the devices that are required. They might not have a complete understanding as to even if they have those devices, how to take advantage of virtual care. There's demographic barriers. And by that, I primarily mean uh, particularly older Americans that might not be comfortable with technology. Uh, there are geographic barriers uh, that might overlay any of these other issues I just mentioned on demographics and socioeconomic, in which folks just don't have access to broadband, for instance, that would even allow them to, to be able to access the full range of telehealth services and modalities of care if they wanted to and could afford it. So one of the things that we're doing, of course, is we're very supportive of making sure that Americans have access to broadband care. And that's one of the requirements in order to make sure every American has access to virtual care. But even if we solve that challenge, we'll not have uh, solved everything and there will still be impediments in place. So we've got to make sure that all insurance forms, public and private, do cover telehealth services. We need to make sure, again, like I was mentioning, like the Telehealth Modernization Act, the Connect for Health Act, need to make sure that these federally qualified health centers and rural health clinics are covering telehealth services. We need to make sure that there is education that occurs whenever necessary to let folks know how to take advantage of this. We need to make sure that audio-only care, which is uh, certainly includes a phone call, not limited to a phone call, 
uh, when clinically appropriate, is available uh, to all populations. Because uh, again, taking those three categories, for socioeconomic purposes, that they might only have access to a phone and they wouldn't have access to telehealth otherwise. For demographic purposes, older Americans might only be comfortable talking on a phone in order to receive clinically appropriate care. And then again, for those geographic reasons, uh, a phone call might be, or some other audio only device might be the only way for you know those Americans living in isolated rural areas to have access to virtual care. So it's something that we keep in mind every day. Uh, the idea of, of increasing access to care, addressing the issues of Americans that are underserved, ensuring that uh, no Americans left behind. We know that that underpins all of our advocacy. And we also know that while telehealth hasn't caused the inequities of the healthcare system, there's no way to solve the inequities of the U.S. healthcare system that's been particularly exposed by COVID-19. If you don't take advantage of the efficiencies of virtual care that will allow us to do more with an increasingly limited U.S. healthcare workforce. How are we going to add patients that aren't, you know, don't have access to care uh, while not uh, breaking the system? And, and there's just no other way to do it uh, other than through virtual care. We've heard stories from folks in the community that kind of cover the spectrum of people who love going to clinic and seeing their providers. And that's it's a day that they look forward to, to see their care team, to folks who it's a burden to get there. It's it's a far trip. Um, getting a power chair into the van to get to clinic is something that is a challenge. I'm curious what you've seen. You know, I know that the, the association's been around for 30 years, roughly, almost. How has the market shifted in terms of providers becoming more comfortable giving care in a virtual environment and patients being open to that, potentially more so than they were in 1993? Right. So uh, obviously it's, it's the difference uh, between night and day. And it came really very rapidly after years of slow but consistent growth. Growth in the industry and, and growth with the degree of comfort that providers and patients had with utilizing virtual care. We had, like I said, in the years leading up to 2020, that consistent degree of growth. Um, but I would say that when policymakers spoke of telehealth, when patients and, and provider advocacy groups spoke of telehealth, they were talking about something that was barely happening now and was uh, had really great hope and promise for the future, but it was something really more on the horizon than in the here and now. That all changed really in the course of a few weeks, and we came into a different world when the pandemic really hit the, the shores here of the United States. And so by March or April, you had under 1% of reimbursable Medicare encounters in the United States go to over 50%. And that's just for one payer. Uh, obviously, commercial payers and, and state-based Medicaid plans also sh uh, showed this huge spike. And so, like it or not, folks had to finally have an encounter virtually. Providers, like it or not, uh, like my father-in-law, who actually is a, a, a neurosurgeon, he all of a sudden had to be thrust into this new world of delivering uh, virtual care. And overwhelmingly, people uh, that tried it at that time really liked it. They liked the convenience. They knew that they were receiving quality care. Uh, they knew they were having access they wouldn't have but for uh, these advances in technology. 
And so they want to keep it as an option. Providers want to keep it as an option for their patients and vice versa. So it's been a, a game changer. One thing that's really important, and you'd mentioned folks that look forward to in-person care and folks that don't have the ability to do it, and it was a real hurdle for them to access care. What we're asking for from policymakers is to remove the barriers when appropriate for folks to have access to care as an option. Uh, sometimes it's a nice to do, sometimes it's a must have. With the complete understanding that at the end of the day, telehealth is just a tool for providers to, under the standard of care, deliver services to patients. It's nothing more complicated than that. That's why we're so much of the belief that telehealth is health. It's not something separate and apart. It shouldn't be looked at as something alien and in the corner. Um, and at the end of the day, people need in-person care. And no telehealth advocate in the country will say that is not the case. But we are firmly of the belief that maybe upwards of one out of three medical encounters can be done virtually. And we know this because of the research and because of what we're hearing from providers and, uh, and medical boards. And so, you know, there is always going to be a need for the laying of hands on patients, and no one doubts that. But obviously, there, there still is a good ways to go in terms of just offering that convenience of quality care in folks' homes or where they are. And that's all we're asking for. And I, I think that Americans, patients, providers know that's really reasonable. Yeah, Kyle, I can't agree more. I think that anybody would want to be a part of this and see value in this fight. So before we let you go, what can people do to support and advance this critical piece of, of, of legislation and importance? Well, uh, don't assume that just because something's overwhelmingly popular, overwhelmingly bipartisan, and has a champion in the White House, that, for instance, the, the Medicare telehealth cliff will be averted. You know, there are lots of roadblocks to uh, legislation going through the grindhouse of Congress and getting signed into law. Uh, even popular items can get impeded. So they need to call their member of Congress, their senator, and urge them to co-sponsor the Connect for Health Act, co-sponsor the Telehealth Modernization Act, tell their member of Congress, don't let us go off the telehealth cliff. That's for Medicare beneficiaries. They also need to call their state legislature and urge them to remove whatever impediments may be in place at the state level. And, and there are lots of resources, including at the American Telemedicine Association website, that can give them a sense of the lay of the land in terms of barriers in place and bills to solve those barriers uh, at the state level. Um, so they, they need to, we need to hear from them. And obviously, Telehealth Awareness Week is a perfect time, uh, September 19th through 25th, for folks to get on uh, social media and uh, send in, you know, op-eds and write uh, to their local newspapers and, and, and just tell everyone that they can of the importance of telehealth and how we can't allow it to go away. Well, Kyle, thanks so much again for your time today and uh, look forward to all the conversation around Telehealth Awareness Week and the fights to come. Thanks so much. It was really wonderful to be here. Uh, I really appreciate the opportunity. Kyle, thank you so much once again for joining us this week to talk about telehealth, telemedicine, how critical it is to those who need to access care no matter where they live, no matter what abilities they have to travel. Also to touch on the Telehealth Modernization Act and then, of course, how the association is advancing that fight. 
Yeah, 30 years, the American Telemedicine Association has been fighting for, to make sure that telehealth is seen as one part of the healthcare delivery system. So plenty of work left to be done. That is going to do it for this week's episode of Connecting ALS. You can find Connecting ALS wherever you listen to podcasts. And while you are there, find time to rate and review us. It is a great opportunity for us to find even more listeners. Our production partner for Connecting ALS is Citizen Racecar. Post-production by Garrett Tiedemann. Production management by Gabriella Montekin. Supervised by David Hoffman. Thanks for listening. We'll connect with you again soon. Music